This is Rabbi Jeffrey Sachs of Atid and Web Yeshiva with a special shiur for Yom Ha'atzmaut. If you're listening to an MP3 recording of what was an interactive session online at webyeshiva.org, you're missing out on the full experience, and please visit us at webyeshiva.org to sign up for our full array of live, interactive, online classes and shiurim. Good evening to everyone. Um, we're going to start in a moment with our session for Yom Ha'atzma'ut, which is this year in which is this year in in Israel being celebrated on Vav Iyar, um, a day later than than usual because of the coincidence of Shabbat and Motzei Shabbat rather and Yom Hazikaron. So. Right now, here in Eretz Yisrael, one hour ago, we started the observance of Yom HaZikaron, of uh, the Memorial Day. Uh, as is our nature, uh, Yom HaAtzma'ut, Israel Independence Day, is always preceded by Memorial Day, in, in memory of uh, all of those who've given their lives uh, over the many years, uh, both soldiers um, as well as as well as uh, civilians uh, killed in in uh, acts of of terror here in Israel, and the evening starts with a one minute a siren that blared throughout the country. Uh, we and our children were outside in our in our backyard as we always do to listen to the to the siren and then uh, the uh, the central ceremony takes place in the at the Kotel, um, in memory of the the fallen, and uh, I know that in America, in certain places, uh, Yom Hazikaron was celebrated. Yom Hazikaron was marked yesterday on the technical date Dalid Er, and Yom Hatzmut uh, will be celebrated uh, tonight. But uh, here in Israel, we're we we pushed it off uh, so as not to not to conflict with Motzei Shabbat. That Yom Hazikaron shouldn't fall out on uh, on uh, on Motzei Shabbat. I, I want to tonight talk about a number of things. The, the The title of our session is the key to Yom Ha'atzmaut. I know that it was advertised as uh, something slightly different, although we'll be talking about that in in a larger uh, context. And I want to talk about some themes in Yom Ha'atzmaut. And and frankly, I, I'll I'll share some some share share some uh, personal reflections on on what the day means to me and and to our family and I'd be happy to hear from you uh what that means what it means for you wherever you might be if I'm not mistaken if I recognize the names I believe that all of our participants are joining us from outside of from outside of Israel um uh Rav Cook whose picture you see here of course it's difficult to speak about the meaning of the modern state of Israel Without talking about uh, without talking about Rav Cook, Rav Avram Yitzchak Hakohen Cook, um, although of course Rav Cook never lived to see the uh, the state of Israel. He he passed away in 1935, uh, 15, 13 years before the establishment of the state. But yet, of course, he is a foundation stone, a foundation stone, not the only. Of course, those of you that will be studying uh, our course of modern Jewish history, which begins next week uh, or continues really next week. Uh, we'll be getting into some of those topics and the uh, the the foundation stones of uh, of uh, of uh, of Zionism and Rav Cook is certainly amongst them. Yael, I see that your hand is up. Do you have a quite, if you have a microphone, feel free to speak. Yael, if you are there, feel free to speak up. And uh, as far as for everyone, uh, feel free, of course, to, to, to participate and to interact. Uh, if you have a webcam, hit the send video button so that we can see you on our uh, on our uh, screens. Okay. Yeah, El, if there's anything you'd like to share, feel free to, to speak up. You have a live mic. Uh, I see that your hand is raised. Uh, Rav Cook, of course, was the chief rabbi of Yafo. Uh, Yafo, in the time of the second Aliyah, uh, 
in the beginning of the 20th century. I believe Rav Cook comes to Israel in 1908. He comes on Aliyah in 1908, and he becomes the chief rabbi of Yafo, which then was the the major metropolis uh, in Eretz Yisrael. Uh, now we think of it as this little uh, kind of quaint village suburb of Tel Aviv, but of course Yafo was there long before Tel Aviv, and Tel Aviv, which just last year celebrated its 100th anniversary, um, grows as a city out of out of Yafo. Um, so uh, Rav Kook is the chief rabbi of Yaffa, which is really uh, the you know the the center of the the new yishuv in Eretz Yisrael. Yerushalayim was the center of what was called the yishuv hayashan, the old yishuv, the traditional uh, religious uh, centered uh, community of Prushim of Ashkenazim who had come uh, to to live in Eretz Yisrael, as well as, of course, Sfardim and Temanim and people from all over the place, Jews from all over the place that had come to to, to Israel. But these these two countervailing poles uh, of Yafo and Yerushalayim uh, are the, the, the two um, axes around which life in Israel um, gravitate in, uh, in the early part of the 20th century. And he's the Rav in in uh, in Yafo, and technically speaking, also for all of the surrounding agricultural settlements, all of which, of course, were all of which, of course, were um, were secular in in nature. And uh, Rav Cook's uh, achievements and uh, and his significance in trying to promote uh, Jewish life and observance and culture are, of course, well known. And that's not our our topic tonight, and, and uh, those that are interested, of course, we generally offer uh, classes about the thought uh, and life of Rav Cook on Web Yeshiva, and I encourage you to to look uh, to look at those. During World War One, however, Rav Cook found himself caught in Europe. He had traveled to Europe. The war breaks out, and he becomes stuck. He spends much of the time in London. At a certain point, he becomes a, a Rav of a synagogue in uh, in London. He spends part of the time in Switzerland. And only after the war is he able to make his way back to what was then, of course, termed Palestine, uh, back to Eretz Yisrael. He becomes chief rabbi in Yerushalayim, and then shortly thereafter he becomes the Rav Harashi, the first Ashkenazic chief rabbi of of Eretz Yisrael. Of course, this all predates... This all predates... Uh, um, the establishment of the state. While he's in London, in 1917, we have the Balfour Declaration. I trust that you all know what that is. If not, a quick Google will help you find more information than you probably need. But 1917, Balfour, who's the foreign secretary of the British government, uh, in the name of the British government, issues a declaration um, which is technically addressed to the Zionist leadership that says the British government, the British, of course, have taken over control of Palestine from the Turks, from the Ottoman Turks at the end of World War I. Um, and the British control uh, for 30-something years, uh, they control, they control uh, 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 Eretz Israel, And they make a declaration that they would favor seeing Palestine become the Jewish homeland. Uh, and this, of course, is a, an event of, of phenomenal significance um, and, and is, you know, uh, you know, the major breakthrough of political Zionism up to, up to that point. However, as I'm sure you're aware, the worldwide Jewish community did not necessarily see this as a positive phenomena. Uh, there were, of course, large pockets of traditional society, uh, particularly in in Europe, uh, more so in Eastern Europe, but also in Western Europe, that didn't think that the Jewish return to sovereignty over Eretz Yisrael was, uh, had met its time, and that we needed to wait, and we needed to see what would happen, and that the Jewish return might be contingent upon upon the arrival of the Messiah. And even if it wasn't, which is, of course, today still a position held by the Neture Karta or by Satmar, which is, you know, not such a uh, significant group in terms of numbers, and we tend to view them as a, a radical fringe, although not in 
insignificant uh, component. Those of you that are interested in the in the kinds of outlines of different uh, different approaches, different political approaches and religious approaches to these questions, I would recommend a book by Aviezer Ravitsky called uh, uh, Zionism. Uh, messianism, messianism, Zionism, and Jewish religious radicalism, uh, which in published a translation into English of a book of his in Hebrew, um, uh, which which really outlines all these things really very well. Um, Rav Cook, of course, was open to the idea that the return of Jewish control over Eretz Yisrael, the time had come. Uh, and and that this was something that was a positive phenomenon. Even those that weren't um, Neture Karta or Satmar, who thought there was a theological problem with the return to Israel, that we had to wait for the arrival of the Messiah, thought that there was a problem, or many of those, thought that there was a problem of the type of cooperation political cooperation, social cooperation, cultural cooperation that would be required of the religious community with the largely, overwhelmingly largely, secular secular uh, Zionist operation. And this was a question that the religious community had. How could it be that the Jewish return to Eretz Yisrael to the land of Israel, to the Holy Land, from which we had been banished for many centuries and from which we had lost control for almost two millennia, how could it be that the agency to return uh, and to maintain control over the Holy Land would be secular in nature? And if so, how could we cooperate with this, the religious community was asking. So there was a religious Zionist movement, uh, which took on the name Mizrahi. It's many Gilgulim. It's many. Uh, it's many uh, uh, ideological and organizational grandchildren, as it were, are still alive uh, here in 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 Israel, um, although have undergone many transformations. Um, but Rav Cook starts this notion that he calls. Degel Yerushalayim. And this text here that we have here, which is which appears in a volume called the uh, Ma'amare Hari'iya, which was published only in 19, uh, 1984, um, it's not part of the normal set of Rav Cook's books, the cookbooks, as they're called, the, the set of uh, Rav Cook's collected writings. In addition to the collected writings, there are a number of other volumes that have come out uh, over the years, published by other, by other uh, uh, bodies besides the Mossad Rav Cook uh, Publishing House, which is kind of the central clearinghouse for Rav Cook's writings. This is in a volume called the Mamar Ariad. It's an essay called Degel Yerushalayim. There are uh, at least one other essay by the same title dealing with a similar theme. Uh, this is published in London. I think it's originally written in Yiddish. This is a translation into Hebrew, but we also have, I'm going to skip ahead, if you'd like this entire packet of documents, you can download it from the website, from the page onto which you logged on when you entered your username and password. That was kind of the home page for tonight's session. There's also a volume in English uh, called Rav A.Y. Cook Selected Letters, which was put out by Tzvi Feldman, which is a collection of which is a collection of uh, Ruff Cook's uh, letters and writings and public statements and things like that translated into English with little annotations. So there's an English translation here, and just for the sake of uh, for the sake of making some headway, I thought we would look through some of this now. The translation is not 100% precise uh, with Ruff Cook. It's sometimes to get a difficult to get a completely precise translation. And sometimes translators will err on the side of the um, of the figurative rather than the rather than the the literal. It's a kind of public call. This uh, this Degel uh, Yerushalayim, the flag, the flag of Jerusalem. Rav Cook says, "Hold on, let me get it up on the screen." It's addressed. It's addressed to the religious community. 
Rav Kook says, we call you, we, meaning Rav Kook, we call you to the sacred task of building our Jewish nation in our holy land, in the land of Israel. Again, this is right after, right after the Balfour Declaration. It's 1917. Here in this note, it says 1919. That refers to the first publication of this, apparently, in in a volume. But the actual declaration, the, the, the broadsheet, or however it was disseminated through the press, was written in 1917, right after the Balfour Declaration. And Rav Cook says, look, this is a historic moment. We call you to the sacred task of building our Jewish nation in our holy land in the land of Israel. Come to us, rally together under the banner of Jerusalem, the Degel Yerushalayim, which we now raise aloft before the whole Jewish rel- religious public. This is a, he's developing a, um, a metaphor uh, with this image of the banner of Jerusalem, which we'll see in a second. We all know of the banner of Tzion, the Degel Tzion. Tzion, of course, Zion, from which we get the term Zionism, Tzion is the poetic name for all of Eretz Yisrael, or specifically Yerushalayim. It's used in in Tehillim, it's used uh, elsewhere. So he says, we know about the, the Degel Tzion, which unites a certain portion of our brethren on the basis of our Jewish secular interests in the land of Israel. But there are many who have not joined the union of those who bear the banner of Tzion, and a great many who feel it impossible to do so. So the banner of Tzion, the Degel Tzion, is a metaphor for the larger Zionist enterprise, secular Zionism. The Degel Yerushalayim is the banner around which we, the Orthodox community, can rally. Yet it cannot be that the largest, most natural, and earnest portion of Jewry, the majority, the majority of the Jewish, let me turn the page, religious public, should remain indifferent to the wonderful events of the present and not lend a hand in the holy task of building our nation on the sacred soil because of so-called objections. So he says it's, it's unreasonable that the religious community should not acknowledge the significance of what's happening around us, the return of Jews, not only the physical return of Jews to the land of Israel, but the return of Jewish control and power over their own affairs in our sacred holy land. And it can't be that the religious community, the community who stands three times a day and prays for the return to Zion, will be adish, will be unmoved by these events because of the secularism of the main the main operators thank you sherry indifferent indifferent is the word i was i was looking for therefore we raise before us the whole religious community the banner of yerushalayim so he says we're going to rally around a not a competing flag but a parallel flag so that all religious Jews may organize their ranks under its folds in order to carry out the work of construction in the land of Israel in accordance with our true Jewish religious spirit. With pride and with courage shall we raise on high our religious banner, the banner of Yerushalayim. Zion and Yerushalayim go hand in hand. It's not a competition, says Rav Kook, but these are two parallel tracks which we can together uh, travel upon to build Eretz Yisrael. From the early beginning of our history, the term Tzion in, in Tanakh has always expressed our kingdom, material power, which is certainly also holy in itself and serves the realization of the holy spiritual aim of our nation, which was, is, and ever will be the kingdom of priests and a holy people of the world. So Tzion, again, Tzion and Yerushalayim, this dichotomy, these, these dyads that he's, that he's, he's developing, Tzion is... The, the physical world, it's, it's the physical Yerushalayim, it's the physical Eretz Yisrael, it's the technical component of building the land, of 
deep-digging wells, of draining swamps, of establishing institutions uh, that can evolve into become the the bureaucracies uh, and the 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 agents uh, the agencies which will run life together and 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 that in and of itself is significant Rav Cook is not negating the value of that he he's saying that itself is almost as if you know not to say dayeno uh, but that in and of itself is a significant step i mean when you think about it I mean, I've I've been living in 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 Israel now. Uh, oh my, uh, sixteen years. There, of course, people that have been here uh, much longer. Um, I see Rabbi Bravender is with us tonight. Rabbi Bravender has been here for the forty forty five years already. Um, there are, of course, people that have been here even longer on the radio uh, just before uh, at the Tekes from. From uh, from the Kotel, uh, President uh, Shimon Peres was speaking. He's one of the few people that can get up in front of an audience and describe the very first Yom Ha'atzmaut, which which he did, and it's always quite moving. I think, I think to hear that um, the, the the accomplishments of of building a state, of of having a state with uh, you know where where everything more or less functions for all of the dysfunction that we like to, uh, you know, at best make fun of and at worst really critique, what we've accomplished is remarkable. What the Jewish people have done here in the last 60, uh, 60, uh, uh, 62 years is, is quite remarkable. Um, you know, when I think that we have... Uh, an army, and we have universities, and we have hospitals, and we have uh, every type of, every type of, uh, every type of institution that a, a normal country has. That in and of itself is a great accomplishment. That is the accomplishment under the banner of Zion. But the term Jerusalem, however, says Rav Cook, expresses the goal of attaining holiness in itself as the highest idealistic tenet of our Jewish existence, both for us and for all humanity. The place of our holy temple, the future house of prayer for all peoples, the city where our great Sanhedrin from whence has gone forth and will go forth the law for all Israel, this is what Yerushalayim signifies. But Rav Kook says, Zion is not enough. We also need Yerushalayim. It's like the goof and the nishama, the body and the soul. The, the, the gashmi, the physical, the technical, the institutional, the bureaucratic, and the inner, the spiritual, the cultural. Uh, culture in the sense that Ruff Cook spoke of culture. Uh, I don't mean that we have movie theaters, um, uh, that, that, we, that, that we have Jewish culture, that we have Torah culture. We have this notion of Torah culture, um, that we have holiness. That's Degel Yerushalayim. And when we're building a, a society together, we need people working on both projects. Ideally, we would have people that can simultaneously work on both projects. But if not, then we need some working on that detail and some working on this detail. We need a banner of Zion and a banner of Yerushalayim. Now, this was Rav Cook's, this was part of his part of the mechanism by which he tried to create big tent Zionism, where he tried to sketch out a playing field on which a religious Jew could feel comfortable joining this enterprise, could take part in it, could see that there's a mission that he or she can fulfill, that the religious community can't be indifferent to what's happening around us. And this is the mechanism by which he, he, he develops that notion. Now, this, of course, is, is similar. Um, this is, of course, similar. It, of course, predates by, by, uh, by at least 40 years uh, Rabbi Soloveitchik's Koldodi Dofeik, uh, another very significant essay another milestone in, in developing a religious Zionist thought. Uh, Rabbi Soloveitchik, perhaps on a different occasion, we can, we can talk about that. I, I think that it's been taught here and there in, uh, in the Web Yeshiva. Um, but I imagine just the outlines are, are probably familiar to many of you. Rabbi Soloveitchik also develops the idea of the Brit Goral 
and the Brit Yehud, that there are certain things that unite the entire Jewish world, irrespective of one's religious outlook, one's political outlook, one's level or lack of level of observance or secularism. That's the Brit Goral, the covenant of the covenant of fate, which binds us all together. This, the Rav is developing an idea in the 1950s. Uh, he points out that Hitler, of course, didn't ask questions about how long your payas were or, uh, or whether or not you said brachot before you ate. There are certain things that unite all Jews. Um, sometimes it's the negative things. Uh, sometimes it's the persecution, which seeks to root out every man, woman, and child, regardless of, of where they stand on a religious spectrum. Uh, perhaps there are other things that unite all Jews. But that's the Brit Goral, the, the covenant of, of fate, that we're, to a certain degree, all Jews are in a common boat. And then, of course, there's the, the Brit Yehud, the covenant of destiny, that it could be that, that each community or each subpopulation within the Jewish world faces a different destiny, is pointed towards a different pole star, and even though we are unique and separate, says Rav, Rav Soloveitchik, the, the religious community, we have our own destiny, but yet we are also partners in fate with the larger Jewish community. And that can be the basis for cooperation. And that can be the basis for, for joining hands in building, in building Eretz Yisrael. So, so Rav Kook foreshadows ideas, or at least the outline of a, developing a philosophy, a theology, by which we can figure out a way towards, towards partnership um, in, the, in, the Zionist, in the Zionist enterprise. But of course, they both emanate from a, an orientation that says the return of Jews to Eretz Yisrael. Now, again, I don't want to overstate this comparison between Rav Kook and, 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 and Rav Soloveitchik. Uh, one is speaking on one side of the establishment of the state. One is speaking on the other side of the establishment of the state. One is speaking on one side of the Holocaust. One is speaking after the Holocaust. There are so many differences in the setting uh, that each of them develops these ideas that it's... It's uh, it's not possible to compare them without pointing that out. But the idea of developing this type of two-sided uh, uh, way of looking at things um, really highlights the creativity of both of them as religious thinkers. Um, uh, the ability to see the larger picture and to see it from from both sides and uh, to put the complexities together is, I think... Um, you know, something that, that unites them. Rav Kook goes on to say, the whole Jewish religious community has forever been deeply bound up with these sacred aims, uh, the aims of Yerushalayim, the aims of creating holiness. It is godly in its thought, holy in its faith, in its deep longings, in its holy prayers. The soul of our nation has expressed, oops, I'm sorry, I, I skipped ahead. The, the soul of our nation has expressed the hope for the restoration of the Shekhinah, the divine presence in Zion, in, in Eretz Yisrael, specifically through the building of Yerushalayim, through the holiness of the temple and the elevation of the divine holiness within us, and through us in the whole world. This is the spiritual aim that we want to express through the organization of the banner of Yerushalayim. Rav Kook was, was trying to create a, uh, not a political party exactly, but a, a, uh, a, uh, an organized an organized uh, effort to draw people in. In fact, Degel Yerushalayim as a political uh, party uh, was not successful in the way that he wanted. You can read about this in various uh, places. And uh, um, uh, that's important to note, but it doesn't take away from the significance of the idea. In order to acquaint the Jewish and Gentile world with those Jewish national religious principles, he wants to create an organized force through which to carry this out in a historical sense. We raise before you, the entire Jewish Orthodox public, the banner of Yerushalayim. This is his, his call to arms, as it were. He calls them, come to us, unite with us, strengthen our power in the pursuit of our religious Jewish interests, which in reality are also the true national interests of the whole community of Israel throughout all generations. So Rav Kook says that you know, what we're doing, what I'm trying to do here is to rally the, the religious community, but really this is a return to the most authentic 
aspirations of the Jewish people throughout the millennia. Come to our banner of Yushalayim, which will be borne by the strongest forces in our religious community in advance of our holy, godly camp of Israel. Orthodox Jews, all the loyal believers in the Jewish faith, there can be no doubt that the divine power is now manifesting itself in us amid the great world events. And again, you see here Rav Cook's reading of, of the events that are going on around him. Um, he says, just look at, look at the world events that are happening here. The, the, return, to, the return of Jews uh, to Eretz Yisrael. In the second Aliyah alone, the second Aliyah goes uh, from about uh, 1908 till about 1917, to, till, up until World War I, let's say. Uh, I think there are something like 40,000 Jews, uh, mostly of, of European descent, about 40,000 Jews that arrive in Eretz Yisrael. Um, it's the most significant, of course, of all of the waves of, of Aliyah. It's the, it's the Aliyah that, that really brings about the revival of the Hebrew language, um, which is, if we talk about the accomplishments of the Jewish people in the, in, in the last century, it's just remarkable to think that we have... Uh, revived the the Hebrew language as a modern language. There were people that thought we couldn't do it, uh, and and unfortunately, there are people today who think that uh, that Hebrew is on the ropes. Uh, and I say this with some degree of embarrassment as we're studying together tonight in English. Um, but uh, but the idea that we revive the Hebrew language, that we have universities where every discipline, uh, I don't just mean Talmud and Bible. I mean, uh, physics and chemistry and history and literature and are studied in are studied in Hebrew is is a remarkable uh, is a remarkable accomplishment. We need now only meet the holy movement with all our strength. The true Jewish word. This is a notion that he develops now in the continuing continuation of the essay, but it probably means the the idea, the idea. The, in Hebrew, in the Hebrew text, he calls it the Omer, the, the utterance. But it, it probably means the authentic Jewish idea, the Jewish holy word wherein lies the strength of our national life and which has hitherto been buried deeply in the depths of the diaspora where its speech was not free. It must now be spoken out freely and openly. That throughout all of the years of the diaspora, because we were not, sovereign over our own lives because of the conditions of the diaspora, because of the conditions of of the oppression. And even in the diasporas that were that were really quite uh, positive, uh, and there were many such uh, periods and communities and nations where the Jews lived and, and flourished. They flourished intellectually, they flourished spiritually, they flourished materially. But yet even there, because we were in the diaspora, there was something repressed. That's the the Jewish the Jewish the Jewish word, the Jewish idea, the 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 authenticity, which will only flower and flourish when planted in its in its natural soil. You can download the the whole packet of sources. Um, you can download the whole packet of sources uh, if you'd like to finish reading the the whole essay on your own. I wanted to just share with you a, a, a related idea, and I think that they're connected. There's a wonderful book. Here you have it. One second, let me just try to get this picture up here so that you can see it. There's a wonderful book that we, that we encountered a couple of years ago called A Will to Survive. Here's the picture. Here's one picture. It's a if you look in the if you look in the video screen you can see a copy of the cover will to survive it was hard to come by i think that i think my wife got it on got it on ebay although it might be on amazon it's by a photographer called john phillips he was a well known uh, apparently he was a well known uh, uh, news photographer um, in the 40s and he came to Yerushalayim on the eve of on the eve of the establishment of the state. And he does this documentary photography in the old city 
of the Jewish inhabitants in the old city on the eve of the, the British withdrawal and the expulsion of the Jews from the, from the old city. And then after 1967, after we returned to the old city, after the Six-Day War, he goes back, it's 19 years later, and he, he finds the subjects of his photographs and he finds, he tracks them down in many cases, he can't do it in every case, and he photographs them again, and he tells the story of what happened to these people in the intervening two decades. Uh, and and it's, a, it's, a really fascinating, it's a really fascinating book. In the book, we have this picture of Rav Mordechai Weingarten. This is Rav Weingarten. Rav Weingarten lived in the old city. He was something like the, um, the, uh, the informal... Head. I think they sometimes refer to him as the mayor, the mayor of the the Jewish mayor of the old city, uh, before uh, before the war in 1948. He was a representative of the Jewish community in the old city. This is a picture of him being escorted by members of the Arab Legion, the Jordanians, uh, to a meeting uh, to talk about the surrender of the Jews uh, of the of the old city. Um, uh, in the book, O Jerusalem, which you may know, it's a really wonderful book. It's a, uh, a historical narrative of the War of Independence. It's a book by these two, uh, they were journalists, I think, by Dominique Lapierre and, and Larry Collins. This you can certainly get on uh, on any, uh, on any um, you know, on Amazon. I'm sure it's, I'm certain it's still in print, although I think that Collins just died last year. So this is a story that's told in the prologue of O Jerusalem. I'll, I'll just read it. You can, you can read along. They knew the sound. For months before this afternoon in May 1948, the forlorn whale had symbolized the frontiers of their existence. It was the skirl of British bagpipes, and now its call reverberated for the last time down these ancient stone passageways, piping away the few British soldiers left inside the old walled city of Jerusalem. Remember, the British had been in control on the eve of the first Yom HaAtzma'ut, uh, the, the British are withdrawing from, from Palestine, and that's what opens up the, uh, the vacuum uh, by which, by which the, the, war, the war starts. So the British are withdrawing, and the call reverberated for the last time down these ancient stone passageways, piping away the few British soldiers left inside the old walled city of Jerusalem. They marched in columns, silent and unsmiling, the rhythmic tramp of their boots blending with the dying notes of the bagpipe. At the head and the rear of each column, one soldier broke the pattern of their unwavering stairs, his restless eyes scanning the hostile stone facades around them. Along the streets of the Jews, from the sculptured stone windows of their synagogues and the mildewed hallways of their sacred houses of learning, the bearded old men watched them go. Their ancestors had watched other soldiers march out of Jerusalem. Babylonians, Assyrians, Romans, Persians, Arabs, Crusaders, and Turks. The martial processions... The, march, the martial processions of these departing British soldiers, whose brief 38-year reign over Jerusalem was now ending... Rabbis, Talmudic scholars, interpreters of the law, pale and stooped from years of unremitting study, those old men and their forebears had huddled for centuries under the walls of Jerusalem, a forgotten fragment of Jewry, living on the charity of their scattered brethren, caretakers of the Jewish heritage of the city of David. They kept the Sabbath and conformed every action of their poor lives to the precise prescriptions of the law. They had memorized their Torah verses and painstakingly copied down the Talmudic texts they passed from generation to generation, and daily they had bowed before the stones of the Temple Mount, beseeching the God of Abraham to bring his people one day to the land of Zion from which they had been cast. That day had never been so close. For, oops, sorry, one second. That day had never been so close. For other eyes, too, followed the British soldiers peering from sandbagged windows and the concealed gun ports, chiseled into the quarter's venerable stones. Impatient with the ways of the divine, armed men stood poised to hasten the fulfillment of his prophecies with the homemade hand grenades and sten guns they clutched by their sides. At last the British soldiers disappeared. They would dash to seize... They would dash to seize the positions of the Englishmen had held for months. 
Suddenly, as the last British column moved down the street, it stopped and veered left up a twisting cobblestone alley leading toward the vast domain of the Ar Armenian Patriarchate. It stopped in front of the arch stones crowning the entry of Number 3 or Achaim Street. If you've, if you've ever been to the old city, you've passed this address without knowing it. It's a street that leads, if you're walking, if you walk in Shar Yafo, the, past the Migdal David, down a street towards the, the, uh, towards the, um, the Cardo, that, uh, those, uh, column, that columned, old columned, uh, Roman marketplace and then you cross over into the Rova by the Churva so you've walked past this if you've, if you've made that trip if you've, if you've walked that walk you've passed this house number 3 Orachayim Street In, sur, inside surrounded by his collection of ancient books and silver Jewish artifacts Rabbi Mordechai Weingarten who you all just saw in that in that picture, the senior citizen of the Jewish quarter had passed the afternoon in the reassuring company of his sacred texts. Lost in his thoughts, he hesitated a moment at the knock on his door. He got up, put on his black vest and jacket, adjusted his gold rimmed spectacles on his black hat, and stepped into the courtyard. There before Weingarten stood a middle-aged British major wearing the yellow and red insignia of the Suffolk Regiment. From his right hand dangled a bar of rusted iron, almost a foot long. With a solemn gesture, he offered it to the elderly rabbi. It was a key, the key to Shar Tzion, to the Zion Gate, one of the seven gates of the old city of Jerusalem. If you've ever been to Yerushalayim, you've also gone through Shar Tzion, through Shar Tzion. It's one of the major gates going into, into the old city. And on the gate, it, there are these massive metal doors which generally are left open but technically can be closed and he gives the key which probably looked something like this if you if you uh, are looking at the at the camera you can see an old antique key. this is not the actual key that would have been a real trick if i could have produced that tonight but it was an old rusty iron key about a foot long it probably looked something like this I'll explain to you the history of this key that I'm holding in, in a moment. The British soldier says to Weingarten as he hands him the key, from the year 70 until today, he said, a key to the gates of Yerushalayim has never been in Jewish hands. This is the first time in 18 centuries that your people have been so privileged. Weingarten extended trembling hand to accept the key. Jewish legend held that on the night that the Roman Emperor Titus destroyed the temple, its despairing priests had thrown the keys of Jerusalem to heaven. He accepts the key, and he makes a Shechianu. Now this Gemara that he refers to, the Gemara that he refers to, it's an idea that appears in the Medrash, it appears in the Gemara, this is the Gemara in, uh, in Ta'anit, this is the version as it appears in the Gemara in, in Ta'anit. Here's the Gemara. Tanu Rabbanan. Tanu Rabbanan. The rabbis taught. Mishacharav habayat barishona nitkabtsu kitot kitot shel pirchei kehuna. When the Beis Hamikdash was being destroyed, the pirchei kehuna, the the groups of the uh, the young Kohanim, gathered. Umaftechot hahechal biyadan. The keys to the Beit Hamikdash, to the Holy Temple, are in their hand. They go up to the roof of the smoldering temple and they shout up to heaven, Ribono Shalolam. Since apparently we have not merited to be faithful watchmen, faithful executors of the temple, you maftechot misrot lacha. We were returning the keys to you. Vizorkam klape mala, and they throw the keys up to heaven. Viyatsta kein pisat yad, v'kibaltan mihem, and the vision of a hand. Of course, God doesn't have a hand, but the vision of a hand, as it were, reaches out, stretches forth, and grabs, and grabs the keys. Vehem kafzuv naflu latocha ur, and those koanim 
jump off the roof, fall into the flames, and they perish. And they perish. And we mourn for them, and even God mourns. Um, and we, we, even, we even, as it were, mourn for God, uh, says the Gemara. That's the idea that Rav Weingarten thinks as the British Major General hands him the key. God is returning the keys to us. Symbolically, of course, this is the key to Shartzio, and that's the key to the temple. We didn't build the temple in 1948. We still, of course, have not. But the idea that we're returning to Eretz Yisrael, that we're returning to build a, a nation for ourselves, a nation full of all types of problems, a nation, I mean, just look at the headlines. It gets worse every day. Sometimes you think that long before our Arab neighbors will get us, we'll manage to destroy ourselves. Tragically. It would be a, a, an irony, a, a sad, tragic irony. But with all the problems, we're returning to Eretz Yisrael. And Weingarten, and, and Mordechai Weingarten, he not necessarily a devotee of of, uh, of Rav Kook, but he, he sees it, he understands. He understands that the return to control over the land, e- even if we're not going to get the Beit HaMikdash right now, is in and of itself of religious significance. Is in and of itself of religious significance. A, a number of years ago, actually when my wife and I first married, we were trying to, you know, like so many people, trying to figure out a way to make Yom Ha'atzmaut uh, a religiously meaningful day. Um, you know, so much energy is put into the question of, you know, what kind of, uh, what brand of Hallel does one say, that sometimes that becomes a spiritual distraction. And the whole thing becomes about, you know, grilling meat. I mean, if you don't live here, you may not know what I'm talking about. But Bezrat Hashem, you'll come to Eretz Yisrael and you'll be with us for Yom Ha'atzmaut and you'll understand what I mean. I guess it's something like in America that like, you know, holidays which once had deep national meaning, you know, have turned into an opportunity for Macy's to have a white sale and don't necessarily have the same the same significance, uh, national, uh, patriotic significance that they once had. Valachas kama vakama, we who have these religious values, sometimes, sometimes the whole thing can become spiritually distracting. So we decided that we were going to start having a, uh, a su'uda at night on Yom Ha'atzmaut. Tomorrow night we'll, we'll be having uh, such a su'uda, such a, such a, such a meal, such a, 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 a festive meal. And the first year that we did it, we invited some friends, and we uh, decided that we would serve a menu that had all shivat haminim, all of the seven species of Eretz Yisrael. I don't know, we were trying to figure out a way to give it some symbolism or something. And a friend of ours, who's a very, very bright fellow, but something of a curmudgeon, pointed out that it's a mistake, that Yom Ha'atzmut is not about Eretz Yisrael per se. That's Tisha, Tu B'Shvat. Tu B'Shvat, you have a su'da with a shivat haminim. It's about Jewish sovereignty. It's about the return of the keys to, to Eretz Yisrael. So you know there's a minhag. There's a minhag that many people have. It happens that we also have this minhag. There's a minhag on the Shabbat after Pesach, meaning we did this last Shabbat, a week, a week and a day ago. On the Shabbat after Pesach, there's a minhag to have what's called a shluschala or shlisalchala. This is a page from the Encyclopedia Judaica. If you look in the Encyclopedia Judaica under the kala, under the article called Food, you'll see this page. It's a page that has, well, let me show you the whole page for a second. It's a page that shows you uh, many different shapes of chalot and that there were different minhagim in different communities that on certain on certain holidays or on certain days, you'd make your challah into a different into a different shape. So everybody knows that on Rosh Hashanah, for example, we have a round challah instead of the regular loaf, and that symbolizes something. You can look on the page to see what all these things are. But one of them is this shlis challah. The key, a, shlis, a shlisel in Yiddish is a key. There was such a minhag that on the Shabbat after Pesach, to bake either to bake the challah in the shape of a key, 
or to actually put a key on the challah. On the challah. So you see like this, like this, like this key that I'm holding is a key that we, you know, you can't just put like a regular like contemporary house key because it, it just looks silly. You need to have like something authentic looking. So we, we found this in an antique shop. We have a couple, now we have a collection of these types of these old, these old keys, which may very well be the key to Shartzion for all I know. And the idea being that why we do it on Pesach, that's a different question. You can look that up. If you Google for two minutes, you'll find something that I once wrote about it, about why this minhag of the key on the Shabbat after Pesach. But we also, at this Su'udah, tomorrow night, we'll also have a Shlus Chala. We'll have a Chala with a key. And then it's to symbolize the idea of the returning of the key to the Jewish people. The returning of the keys to the Jewish people. We also, part of the minhag that we developed, minhag, I mean, what does it mean minhag? It means that this is what we do in our house. And a lot of our friends have joined it. We also dip it in honey, like, like you do on Rosh Hashanah, in the hope that the coming year will be a sweet one for all of us here in Eretz Yisrael. But recently, recently, I, um, I, I discovered something else which had, which had some meaning for me. Shai Agnon, uh, who, who I hope is, is familiar to you, the great uh, Nobel laureate Hebrew, Hebrew author, Agnon has a book called Oreach Natalalun. In English, I think it's translated as A Guest for the Night. It's a story which is, which is very evocative, very powerful. It, it's, the book was written in the early 30s. It's a novel written in the early 30s, and it was inspired by something in his own biography. Agnon had come to live in Israel, I think, in 1907 or 1908. Uh, as a young man, he came on Aliyah. He was part of that second Aliyah. He actually uh, was, was deeply influenced by Rav Kook. He lives in Yafo, and Rav Kook is the Rav in Yafo, and, and Agnon is deeply influenced by, by Rav Kook. Uh, at a certain period, he also ended up being in Europe during World War I, and then he got stuck there for a while. He got married, he had kids until he came back. He comes back to Eretz Yisrael. He's living in Yerushalayim now. In 1930, the first time his collected works, Agnon's collected stories were being published, they were being published in Berlin. Because believe it or not, in 1930, uh, the, the center of Hebrew printing was still in Europe. In Eretz Yisrael, they didn't yet have a, a, they didn't yet have a very well developed publishing industry, and uh, and books that were printed were very often printed still in in Europe. And his books were being printed in in Europe. They put out a collection at the time. It was a collection of four volumes. Were being printed in Berlin. So he makes a, a visit to Berlin to um, to supervise the the publishing of of his books. And on his way back home to Yerushalayim, he stops in Buchach, in Eastern Europe, in Galicia, in what today is in the Ukraine, um, which was his home, which was where his family was. He still had relatives that lived there. And this visit back to his home, the 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 you know the scene of so many of his of his of his of his novels, the 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 Polish Galician. Uh, world of the shtetl and of the city and and of the traditional society, and he realizes, having been away from that world for almost, uh, you know, for over twenty years, and this is before the Holocaust. This is nineteen thirty, but he comes to a realization that that world is is coming to an end that the traditional society is breaking down. Poverty is cracking, is, 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 is breaking it down. Secularization is, is breaking it down. He goes back to Yushalayim and he writes a book called Oreach Natalalun, A Guest for the Night, in which, in which a, an unnamed narrator, who, who's obviously based autobiographically on Agnon himself, who had made Aliyah, who had come to Israel years before, returns to his hometown in Eastern Europe for a visit. 
in this in the book he's there for the entire cycle of a year from Yom Kippur to Yom Kippur uh, Agnon's visit was shorter um and he observes that the world is breaking down he gets to the old Beit Midrash the old house of study which had once been a center of 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 learning and dialogue and and tefillah and and it's empty and people aren't interested in going there. And at a certain point, the Gabbai of the old Beit Midrash tells him, tells the narrator, if you're so interested in, in he wants to go to, to find a book. And uh, the narrator, the, the, the Gabbai tells him, you know, if you're so interested in the place, why don't you, here's the key. Why don't you take the key and, uh, and you can uh, come and go as you please. Make a long story short, the key is lost. He has a new key made. He has a new key made. And as he's leaving Buchach, what what he calls uh, satirically Shibush, uh, the town, as he's leaving, he entrusts a newborn child with the key to the Beit Midrash in the hope that someone will take interest in what once was. Then at the end of the book, in the in the penultimate chapter, he gets back to, to 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 his home in, in uh, in Eretz Yisrael, and this is where the chapter picks up. Um, he gets back to his house, and Yom Echad, Badka, et et. He says, I took my suit. He gets back. He unpacks. He's sitting around. He, he puts his things away. And he takes his suitcase. He says, the suitcase had become worn and torn during his travels. And there was a hole in, in the compartment of the suitcase. He's talking about his wife. So my wife is unpacking my bags and she reaches into this hole that had torn between the seams of the suitcase and she says, hey, what's this? So the key which was lost, and you don't need me to unpack the symbolism of all of this, but the key that was lost was hiding in the crack in the tear of his of his suitcase. Amarati nival umishdomem. He says, "I was shocked. I was stupefied." Hare mafteach beit medrashenu hayashanhu. That's the key. It's the original key uh, to the to the old beit medrash. Um, it's the original key to the old beit medrash. I'll skip ahead. So he realizes that this is the original key and not the copy of the key which he, which he had had made. This is the key that they gave me. He says, a thousand times I looked for it, and a thousand times I gave up, and a thousand times I went back to look for it again until I found the new key. And now that I don't need it anymore, now that I've returned home, now the key turns up. So seems I put it into my suitcase, it fell into the crack, I didn't notice it. A large part of the story that takes place up until this point is about his trying to find the key and what does it mean that he'd lost the key. So after I got over the, the shock of you know 
finally finding the key and discovering it was with me the whole time. Words, it's the equivalent of uh, it's the equivalent of um, I don't know of Dorothy realizing that uh, the ruby slippers could have taken her back. You know, uh, at the beginning of the story. Right, the secret, uh, the thing that he'd been searching for, you know, the, this plot device that he'd been searching for the the whole, the whole, the whole length of the story it was with him, you know, in his pocket, as it were, all the time. Uh, so he tells his wife, he explains the story to his wife. Um, so he says, so he tells the whole story to his wife. Let me skip ahead. So his wife says you should probably mail it back to the to the town. He says, look, they already have one key, the copy of the key that I made, which they don't need because nobody goes to the old Beit Midrash. What do they need a second one for? So she says, what are you going to do with the key? This is a Gemara in Megillah. The Gemara says that in the future, in the days of the Mashiach, the shuls and schools and Bate Midrash the Jewish institutions of Chutz Laaretz will, as if on a magic carpet, be transported to Eretz Yisrael. Not only will the Jews return to Eretz Yisrael, but the Jewish institutions of the Gola will also come. That's part of the Kibbutz Galiot, of the ingathering of the Jews, is also the ingathering of the shuls and the Bate Midrash, which probably symbolize the achievements of Jewish culture writ large. Amartili, I said to myself, So he says, look, that old Beit Midrash of my old town in Eastern Europe, it too will come to Eretz Yisrael. It too will come to Yerushalayim. And I have the key waiting in my hand for when it does. This is a very packed sentence, which, if you catch the reference, good, if not... Work at it till you understand it. Hamafteach tzafun b'mkom shetzfantiv v'ani chazarti levadot la'avodati. Says I, I, I put the key away and I went back to work. Keshaiti niskarbo haiti machshev mechashev belibi atidim bateknesiot bateknesiot vechulei. Says every time I thought of the key, I thought of the Gemara and the idea that in the future that Beit Midrash will itself come to live in Israel. And I look out the window in anticipation that maybe they're on their way. Maybe they're on their way. But what... I don't hear their footsteps. They're not coming. Or they're not coming yet. And yet the key still rests with me in anticipation of the day when they will arrive. The key which is made of brass and iron it's strong. It can last a long time. It can wait. Ani shani basaradam kasheli la modbi. But I, who am only a man of flesh and blood, it's hard for me to wait. So, I think the imagery is so strong, and I think it's so powerful. 
the idea of the key, the key to Yom HaAtzma'ut, the key of Rav Weingarten seeing the return, Hashem returning, the key back to us, the notion of Rav Kook, of what it is that we're doing here and what it is that we're trying to build here. And the key of the Agnon story, which is the symbol of the anticipation that we all have. You'll pardon me, my friends. The anticipation that we, Hayoshev B'Tzion, all have for you, for you, for your shuls, for your Bate Midrash, for your schools, for your institutions, but mostly for you and your homes and your families to join us here. So the Shluschala for us on Yom Hatzmut becomes also a symbol of that anticipation of La'atid Lavo, that you will all join us here in this unfinished experiment that we have, trying to figure out a way to unite the Degel Tzion and the Degel Yerushalayim together to build a society that's worthy of the Jewish people and for Hashem's aspirations for us. So I wish you all a Yom Ha'atzmaut Sameach, that you should find for yourselves a way to make it spiritually meaningful for you and for yours. If anybody themselves has any ideas or any thoughts about what they do on Yom Ha'atzmaut or how they've tried to build meaning for it, I'd be happy to, to hear that. You all have microphones where you can raise your hand, you can chat in.